The following podcast is a Bostic Media production. She's a lifestyle blogger extraordinaire. Fantastic. And he's a serial entrepreneur. A very smart cookie. And now Lauren Everts and Michael Bostic are bringing you along for the ride. Get ready for some major realness. Welcome to the Skinny Confidential, him and her. Aha! What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Skinny Confidential, him and her show. Today, we're going to be talking with Ryan Holiday, who's an author and master marketer. But first, I'm Lauren Everts, the creator of the Skinny Confidential, which is a blog, podcast, and YouTube channel. And I'm Michael Bostic. I'm an entrepreneur, marketer, business builder, and operator, and now a podcaster. Okay, so as Lauren said, today we are interviewing an author that I really admire. His name is Ryan Holiday. And to give you a little background on Ryan, at the young age of 30, Ryan has written six books, which include The Obstacle is the Way, Growth Hacker Marketing, The Daily Stoic, and Ego is the Enemy. I think I've shared or talked about a few of these on this podcast and on Lauren's blog. He recently released a new book called Perennial Seller, which we will get into in this interview. He is also a marketer, and at the young age of 21, he was the CMO of American Apparel. Since then, his company Brass Check has worked with businesses and personalities that include Google, Tim Ferriss, Tony Robbins, Tucker Max, and Ariana Huffington. No big to deal. To name a few. So yeah, this interview is one of our longer interviews. Lauren and I have been a fan of Ryan's work for a while. So when we got the opportunity to interview him in his office in Austin, Texas, we took full advantage. And can I say that he has my dream library? He has the library, like kind of like Beauty and the Beast, but without the ladders. It's Michael's dream. And we actually, like Michael said, flew to Austin to interview him. We flew in and out. It was like a one-day trip. We were on Rainy Street. We were on Rainy. We went to the restaurant Perla, which is so good. Is it Perla's or Perla? It's one of those. And we had oysters, and they had oyster shooters that were spicy. We had a little rosé. Really good. Really fun, but quick in and out. I've always loved Austin, though. Austin's fun. Okay, so the first half of this interview really covers a lot of Ryan's background and his career. We talk about what it was like for him to drop out of college and apprentice under the author Robert Greene, who wrote The 48 Laws of Power. We also talk about what it took to persevere through hardships at a very young age and the importance of reading, which I, I, I love. And then the second half of the interview covers a lot on the subject and philosophy of Stoicism. For those of you who want to learn more about Stoicism, Stoicism is, is an ancient philosophy that core value is basically rooted in the belief that we can't control the world and events around us. We can only control our response to those events and how we perceive them. It's my favorite set of philosophies, and um, Ryan is definitely an expert on the subject. So for those of you who like the mindset stuff, the second half of the show will be right up your alley. Didn't you read one chapter a day of his Stoicism book? Well, he has a book called The Daily Stoic. You read one a day, right? You read a page a day, not a chapter, and I recommend it. Yeah, it's great. And you wrote in it. And when you weren't looking, I peeked at what I you jur- wrote. I journal in it sometimes. You journal. Yeah. I always peek at your journal. Well, damn it. <laughs> All right, guys. So here we go. Hope you enjoy Ryan Holiday. This is the Skinny Confidential, him and her. Okay, Ryan, let's get a little background on you. So you have a lot of accomplishments at a very young age. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Give us the deets. <laughs> I, gr- I grew up outside Sacramento, uh, which was a very boring place. Um, very sort of normal parents. Like my dad was a police officer. My mom was a school principal. 
So I was sort of on track to be like an, a normal person. I went to school in Riverside uh, to be with my high school girlfriend, which went horribly. And then uh, I ended up dropping out at 20 because I got a, a job working for a writer that I really liked. So it sort of, uh, I thought my life was going to go one direction and then very quickly it veered in another direction and it sort of hasn't stopped since then. Okay, so tell me about how you started working for this author. His name was Robert Green. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was working for, I'd, I'd written an article about another author when I was in college for the college newspaper. And I was sort of using this newspaper as like a way to meet people that I wanted to meet uh, in the way that some people do it with podcasts, right? Like, uh, it's like, oh, I'm going to do this thing. And then it gives me an excuse to like reach out and meet people. Like and we're so, doing right now. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, so that's what I was doing. And then, um, so I was working for this author who happened to be friends with and also worked with Robert Greene. And then uh, as, as that sort of evolved, Robert was in the market for a research assistant. And I was like, that is what I was like put here on this planet to do. Like, like I loved his books. I was a huge fan of his writing. Um, I wanted to learn how to be a writer. And like, I don't even think that I thought that that was a job, like that someone could get paid to like help someone else with their books. And so I was sort of begged for it. And um, my first job for him was he was writing a book with 50 Cent. I think it's, it's around here somewhere. Um, he was writing a book with 50 Cent. And so my first job was just transcribing the interviews. Um, so I just transcribed hours and hours of, of, of interviews with 50 cent. Then you, you like sat down with actual 50 cent. No, 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 no. Like I would get the audio file of it and then I would have to transcribe, transcribe this. And so that was like my first glimpse into like how writing worked and how books would work. And when you did this, did working for Robert contribute to you, your decision to drop out or was that, did that come after? So I, I, I had another offer to drop out to work at this talent agency in Hollywood and I was like sort of really thinking about it. And then the Robert thing happened like at the same time. And so it was like, I would have dropped out for either one of these probably. And so the chance to do both at the same time, it was like, this is, this is a sign. This will never happen again. I can't turn this down. And, and what are like, your parents thinking? Uh, they freaked out. They thought it was a horrible idea. Um, you know, like they had raised my sister and I to go to college Um I think they took a lot of pride in us going to college. And I think I think a huge part of it was like they didn't want to be the parents of the kid who dropped out of college. Because it was just, er, I'm the oldest, and so I would have been the only one of any of their friends' kids to who who didn't finish college. Um, and you're setting the example. Yeah, yeah, and, and with my sister. And yeah, that's a good point. I never thought about it that way. I I think one of the things I realized is that, you know, your parents' job is not for you to be happy. Your parents' job is for you to be safe and, like, not die. Like, that's your parents' main job is, like, is not for you to find your dream job and fill fill it with meaning. Your parents' job is to, like, make sure that you know how to, like, tie your shoes and you eat, you know? And so for them, the, all they saw was the downside, right? That, like, I was... I had a scholarship that I was walking away from that I'd, you know, I'd worked hard in high school to go to this college that, that I was, I only had a year left of school. Um, you know, so, so all they saw was the downside and all I saw was the upside. And so, you know, you're going to have these points in your life where you're sort of, 
you have to go, oh, I realize why you're giving me this advice and it comes from a good place, but it's it's too conservative. So I, I ended up doing it and it was, uh, you know, we didn't talk for a long time. It was worked out now, and so it's sort of this thing that we don't talk about. They're okay with it now. Yeah, well, of course. Uh, uh, they everything's all, everything turned out all right. Yeah, yeah. It's like let's uh, let's pretend this never happened. But you know, if I was living under a bridge somewhere right now, or if I was still struggling to make it as a writer, that dynamic would change. Probably, I, I would think would probably have changed a little bit. But they they were just. Re- I think they were really scared, and they were really focused on how badly it could go and i think what i realized is is like one how great it could go but that it wasn't as bad as they thought like i think a lot of times when we face risks like that we're thinking like it's like okay if this doesn't go right then this could go wrong and then this and then and then yeah you end up living under a bridge and the truth was when i went to drop out you know i walk in the registrar's office and i'm like you know i'm ready to drop out they're like that's not a thing you know what i mean like they're yeah. they're like this this isn't like a they're like, you just don't enroll in any classes this semester. And then you don't enroll the next semester. You just don't ne- come back. Yeah, you just you just Leave. don't come back until it's... you decide to either come back or it's... You know what I mean? Like, there's no official paperwork that, like, was really involved in this in any way. I just... They stopped charging me for tuition and I stopped going to class. Like, that's what happened. It's strange to think about because, you know, for me, I was not always the best student, but I went through all the years of college, all the yeah. years of high school and finished. And I feel like I, I, if I was more focused on what I would like a career path or something there and not just like kind of hanging out and yeah. going through the motions, I would have got a lot more out of it. I think actually maybe now going back, I could get a lot more out of schooling. Me too. Like a lot more. Yeah. But at the time, you're right. It's just like, you don't really think like, okay, I could just leave. Yeah. And, and I wish that I had gone into it thinking that I might leave. Because, like, so I was supposed to graduate in three years. I was on track two. So I went to two years, but really I got three years, if you think about it. Um, but I did all the, I did all, like, the basic stuff first. So I went to college, but really it was like I just did an extra two years of high school. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, 100%. I did, like, I, I, I wasn't, like, in any of these life-changing class. Like, I wish I'd taken, I you could get everything out of college in six months if you went in there and you were like here's what i'm here to learn i think most people go and they're like and i'll figure it out but actually you'd be much better off going like you know you know what it's like it's like you know on that show like supermarket sweep yeah if like if you're just like running around and you don't have a plan like it's probably not going to work out for you but if you're like oh i'm going to this aisle like you're the guy that grabs all the most yeah yeah exactly like i wish i'd gone in going like here are the the 20 professors that i'm going to meet here are the eight famous classes that I'm going to take. You know, these are the things that are going to set me up for what I'm, you know, I was just winging it and then I got lucky, but. Yeah, no, I get, I mean, I don't want to go too deep into schooling, but it's, I feel like there's, you're kind of doing a disservice to young people because at 18, you know, I get out of high school and I yeah. don't know what the hell I'm doing. And then I get there and they're like, okay, what about this elective? I'm like, yeah, that sounds all right. Like that, yeah. that, that seems like it'll help me. But I, there was never a thought like, okay, I need to do this and take these classes and get interested. I mean. Some, and it's funny, a lot of the classes were electives. I, I remember I took like Greek mythology and that was one of the classes I was the most fired up on. Sure, sure. And then another one was on like water conservation. I was like, what the hell am I doing I mean, in here? I get in trouble all the time because I think college was a waste of time and money for me. I, I really yeah. think that. Not for everyone, but well, look, for, for me. Thirty for or $40,000 a year is a very expensive price tag to pay to figure something out. If you're, if you're 
if you're like, here's what I'm doing. And so I'm paying, I'm investing $40,000 a year in pursuing it. It might actually be a great deal. And I think it's the same since I dropped out, I hear from lots of people who dropped out and they're like, I really don't like school. So, or I hate my job. So I'm quitting my job or I'm dropping out of school. And now I'm going to like figure out what I'm going to do. And it's like, again, cutting off your education or your sources of income is a very expensive way to then go figure out what you're going to do. It's like, like when I decided to be, uh, I had a very good job when I decided to leave that to become a writer. There was about a year learning from the college experience. There was like a year where I knew that's what I was going to do, but I spent a year saving up money, meeting people, like preparing. You got to like look before you leap. You know what 100%. I mean? And I, I think people leap right into college and then other people leap right out of college. Without a plan. Without a plan. Okay. Speaking of plans, talking about writing and yeah. marketing, which is both, those are your two professions now. I'd say probably more writing at this point. Or yeah, it's about even. Of, about even. Yeah. You didn't go to school for either, always wanted to be a writer, always wanted to go into marketing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it was that I always wanted to be a writer or I, I, I came to want to be a writer. And then like early on, it, it's like, you might really want to be a musician, but no one wants to pay you to be a musician. So you should find what is adjacent to being a musician that you can get paid to do. Which, you know, is, which was marketing in your case. In my case, yeah. It was like, okay, so I, I was Robert's research assistant, and then I started working as a marketer for different authors. So I was like in the world, and like in that world, meeting people, learning things, like figuring it out sort of in the scene before I ever was writing anything myself. Well, and you're being, in my opinion, being super humble, which I'm not surprised about, but you were not just in and around that world. You were the CMO of American Apparel, which everybody at this generation remembers can you tell us a little bit about that and what that experience was like how did you even end up there and how did you even get involved in that it was a it was another random thing because uh so i was working for robert and i was sort of his protege and he was on the board of directors of american apparel so um he was like hey you should hire this kid like he he knows some things and so i started a really low level position there i didn't have a job title i didn't even have an office um and I just sort of, they were like, figure it out, you know, figure out a role for yourself here. And, and I sort of worked my way up and then there was a sort of a marketing disaster and I, I ended up sort of building a new marketing department inside the company, which I then took over. Um, so it's the same thing. It's like, uh, I, I knew that I wanted to be around, like when I, when I met Dove, who was the owner of American Apparel at the time, um, you know, he was like, he wasn't like, hey, I'd like you to be the director of marketing. But it was like, I, I knew that if I was adjacent to it, there might be an opportunity. So I think a lot of people want, like people are like, you know, I want to um, I, I want to be like an influencer. Or I want to be a writer. Or I want to make videos. And they think like someone's going to like hand them this thing. And uh, or they quit and they expect that they quit whatever they're doing and expect to be magically like anointed that thing. Or inspired. Yeah. You yeah. know, what? this is an interesting, I wasn't even going to ask this question, but we were just talking about it at breakfast with young people in general and just people we have experienced with. And this is not to throw anybody on the bus, but just analyzing, like there's been so many times in both our lives when you either you're working at something or you're getting a new job or you're, you're starting a new company. And the issues that we're running into is a lot of young people, they get hired for something or they get involved in a job and they say, this is what I want to do. But inevitably with any of those jobs, other tasks, menial tasks that they may not want to do come sure. along 
and they kind of say, well, I don't, that's not what I want to do. So I'm just going to throw that aside. I'm going to yeah. do a really good job at what I want to do, sure. but I'm not going to do this stuff. And I always try to explain to you, I'm like, listen, there's so many things that happen in Lauren and I's life. And I'm assuming yours where there's like a million tasks that I don't want to do and don't want to be involved yeah, with, you but you just, get you have to. to get comfortable. And I don't think, yeah, I think a course. lot of people aren't understanding, like in anything you're doing, there's going to be tasks that suck. Like in, that you don't that you don't get fired up on. It just comes with the territory. Yeah, of, of course. And and in a weird way, that's actually where the biggest opportunity is, in my opinion, because um, everyone is pretty good at the stuff they like doing. If you can be the person that can do or excel at the things that other people don't like doing, um, that's a real opportunity. And in um, Ego's the Enemy, I, I talk, which is one of my books, I talk about Bill Belichick breaks into professional football as a film analyst. Because at that time, I think he got a job working for free for what was then the Baltimore Colts. But nobody in football liked breaking down film. It, it was much harder than it is now. It wasn't seen as this like competitive edge or advantage. And so he was like, look, I'll do it. And I'll, I'll break down the film. I'll come up with the insights that the coaches and players can use at game time. It, they're not going to be like, oh, Bill found this. They're going to steal credit for the things that I found. But... In time, they're going to come to be very dependent on me. You know what I mean? And and in a way, with Robert, it was like I started doing little things, and I was, and then a slightly bigger thing would come up, and he'd be like, "Well, I could do this myself, or I could see if Ryan could figure it out." And I think of, depend that what you said about dependency, like that, you just kind of nailed it on the head. It's like someone becomes dependent on you because you're doing things that other people don't want to do. And constantly finding angles, as and they're well. important. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to kind of switch gears here. Okay. Can you tell us about a dark or tough period in your life that you experienced and how did you come out of it? What did you learn? Well, so when I, when I dropped out, uh, in retrospect, it seems like it went very well. So I, I dropped out to work for this talent agent also. So I was working for Robert, but also this talent agent. And um, uh, so he was like, look, take a week to go get your, you know, move out of college, like get an apartment, like start, you'll start on Monday. Um, that Sunday he checked into rehab. So the person that I quit school to work for that I had convinced my parents was like this huge opportunity that they didn't even believe me on. Uh, you know, he, he checks in. So I show up, the person that I was replacing had not been fired. None of the other people who worked there had been informed, uh, that I'd been hired and he's um, in rehab and he's in rehab. So it was unreachable for 30 days. Uh, and then I, I've moved to a new city. Um, I'm supposed to be doing all this stuff. And then this is a, this is a, I don't know if I've talked about this, but, um, so when I'd met Robert and he decided to hire me, uh, he was like, give me your phone number and I'll call you and we'll like, get started. And so that was supposed to happen around the same time. Well, I just got a new, a new phone and, uh, like a new phone number and I gave him the wrong phone number. Like I didn't know my own phone number well enough. Like I made a mistake and I gave him the wrong number. And so he was calling me frantically you know, and I wasn't answering. So he thought I was like blowing him off. So this, like, you know, what could have been this, what I thought was going to be this exciting, awesome thing turns into a complete shit show almost immediately. I almost lose both jobs that I just left college for. Uh, Mom and dad are pissed. Well, they, They they're, we're not even talking. So I can't even like, I can't even be like, dad, you'll never believe what happened. It was like, it was like, I can't even admit how horribly this is going or they'll just say, I told you so. Um, so it was a complete, you know, it was a complete disaster, uh, in, in every pot, like, uh, it was scary enough had it gone well, 
And this was just terrifying. Um, and you probably didn't have a lot of people to relate to because I feel like you're young, sure. you dropped out of college. Like, how is that? Yeah, I mean, I'm 20 years old, so I don't have anyone to talk to about it. The, the only person that I had was my then-girlfriend, now-wife. And so it's, it is it is interesting to me, and you guys are an example of this, but, like, um, you know, I meet, like, lots of entrepreneurs or people who, who are really ambitious, and they're like, I can't be in a relationship. I can't afford to be, like, tied down or I, I don't have time for it. Like, I see very clearly when I look back on my life that, like, if I hadn't had this person who was like, it's going to be okay, you're going to be fine, like, you know, who was there for me, I think I might have just gone back to school. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it could have... It's a teammate. Yeah, it, it's it's someone who's, like, in it with you. In um, a different way, though, too, because, like, yes. you know, if, if, if you and I partnered on a business, like, we're partners, and hopefully it goes very well, and hopefully we, we can sure. enjoy each other's company and all that and trust each other. But when you're at least in this situation if Lauren and I are married like it's a different you know it's yeah. it's a different partnership it's like you're sure. on the same team working towards the same goal and like not you're not even talking income but it like goes to the same spot and you're you know you're building a family and like it, well, you wouldn't tell your business partner like I'm scared I think I've made a, made a huge mistake yeah. right um, so he's gonna lose faith in you yeah exactly um, there's no need for like pretense or any of that sort of posturing and so yeah, it was it? I mean, it ended up working out, obviously, but uh, it was it, it, and that's why one of the things I tell people is like, you can't just like jump off this cliff and and not have a plan or a support system or uh, a fallback because it all the things that can go wrong can go wrong, and sometimes they will. And and how are you going to come out of the other side of that? You say when you write a book, you put like you're all into it. How does that affect the relationships around you? Are they able to just kind of wait on the sidelines and be your cheerleader? Um, so when I, I remember when I sold, it was either my second or my third book, uh, which and they were all in very short uh, relation to each other. My editor sent an email. To, she sent an email to me. She was like, congratulations, you know, like the deal's signed or whatever. And then she sent an email to my wife that just said, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because because it was like, you know, you're, you're always thinking, okay, like at the end of this project, it'll go back to normal yeah. or we'll take a break. But it never does. It never does. Um, I mean, the room we're sitting in right now is basically, this is what, Lauren, this is, this is like basically my dream room. So you just, you could put me in here for a month. I wouldn't bother you. Give me some like a yeah, bowl I'm of food. Yeah, I'm fucked. I'm fucked. This yeah. is like. Bowl of food and water. We're in a room with like, I don't know how many books here. I consider myself a reader. Um, I don't know how pretty like voracious, right? I, li- I like to read a lot I, it, it, for my sanity. You know, I at yeah. least have to read one to two hours a day every day as much as I can. But you're putting me to shame here right now. <laughs> this is a lot. Well, this is my job. Yeah. So like, I mean, uh, like this whole shelf in the middle. Cause, so it was arranged. But whenever I do the bookshelves, I never, um, I never think about like where the new books are going to go. You know, like I'm like, I'm. I'm filling all the ones I have, but the, so like that middle shelf is, is basically I think that was all the books for Ego is the Enemy. So like, it's it's somewhat unfair to compare to like a person who's doing it purely out of enjoyment. It's like if you went to a baseball player's house and you're like, oh, you have a lot of baseball bats or like you have a <laughs> lot of guitars. It's like this is my this is my job. But um, how much research goes into writing one book? Because to me, this is like crazy. Uh, I mean, a couple hundred books probably. Um, and then and then papers and articles and all sorts of other things. Uh, a lot. That's a lot. So um, just talking about reading in general, have you always been a big reader? And how yeah. is how has reading affected your life outside of you know it helps you write your books and it gives you a well-rounded base of knowledge and, and all the like the obvious. What are the maybe not so obvious reasons and how reading is like attributed to your life or helped you or helped you progress in your career? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's all based on. It, I don't think I would be sitting here if it wasn't if it wasn't for books. I mean, it, it's given me a huge competitive edge. I mean, if you think about it, it's like the smartest people in history have been writing books, describing what they went through, what they've learned, mistakes that they've made, and so I, I've always felt like, well, instead of learning those things, like in my own experiences, I'd rather learn and then build experiences on top of that. So, um, yeah, I've always I've always tried to read as much as I humanly can. Um, and I think like the reason that my job with Robert worked out is that I'd read all his books and they'd sent me down this route. Like I was trying, I, I so loved his writing that I was trying to like reverse engineer it before I even met him. And then, so when he was like, I need someone who can do that. I was like, well, I've taught myself that already. Like I, please give me a shot, you know? Um, but to go to your question, it's a, uh, there's a, an introversion in writing and a loneliness to it, and it does put a strain on relationships. But I think um, you've got to, like, I don't think if my wife was a writer, I don't think it would work out. Like, I don't know if there's some, every relationship is different, but I would think it would be hard for there to be, like, two of me in a relationship. So we're we're very different, and then so we work together in that sense. Um and like I'm very cerebral and she's very intuitive. Um, and so I, I think we're one of those couples where opposites work really well together. It also causes conflict, obviously, but um, I think you need uh, you need someone like that. Um, although I, I, I'm, I'm really actually impressed by people who do it on their own because I'm like not sure how where that strength comes from totally having a teammate is, is so important it's been super important michael's kind of behind the scenes in my business but i definitely think it's propelled me forward to um, continue to try to be successful yeah so i kind of want to talk about american apparel i know we okay. talked about this but i want to talk about the pr stunts sure because i really want my audience to hear like the depth Okay. I think I <laughs> like, read. Let's get I'll into give you. It. I think the, she's triggered on this because I, I either read something or heard something that you did when you were working <laughs> with Tucker Max. I don't know if a lot of you know Tucker Max. Might be a little bit ahead of time, but yeah, I want to hear about that. The kind book. What's it called? <laughs> I hope they serve beer in hell. Uh-huh. It, was, it was a huge, and, and you did all yeah. the marketing behind that. And I and I read a story or heard a story that you actually, you know, there was a huge uproar around him, and you had posters printed, and then you actually vandalized the posters. Yeah. So so the book was a a big success. Uh, just by word of mouth alone, it, it, it's a great book, and I think I have it. Yeah, I have some up there. Um, and uh, then they they turned it into a movie, and it was like an independent movie. Um, the movie's not great, but the marketing was great, and we had a um, we had a very small marketing budget, and so the book had always been controversial. So we sort of thought, well, could we lean into the contra- Like how, the the thing was like, how do you get like young men to go see a movie? Um, I thought one of the ways would be like, what if you told them that they shouldn't be allowed to see the movie? And so we created like a boycott around it. And um, and so it started with protests and then it was like a big thing online. And then uh, we'd had enough budget to buy ads, I think in like three major cities. And one of the cities was in Los Angeles. And so I thought, what if we go and we vandalize the billboards? Because the billboards had been designed to be provocative and people were talking about it online. But I thought, what if I like... Um, what if we like graffiti over the billboards? Like we, we, we start like a, th- a thing about people doing that. And you did this prior to putting them up or you guys actually went up? No, no. Like I'm just trying we, to picture we, it. We bought them through a company. Okay. So they go up and then I, I was like, okay, I asked the ad agency like, okay, where are they? And they're like, it's, it's, it was like Olympic and 
Olympic in La Cienega, maybe so in a, Los it's Angeles. In Hollywood, yeah. yeah, and then uh, so we drove there, and then we vandalized the billboard. Then I took pictures of it, and then I leaked those pictures um, to Curbed LA, which is a big LA blog. Uh, and then they ran it. And then I emailed it to some other websites, and then the next thing I know, there was a big piece in New York, written the Village Voice, that a bunch of feminists had started doing it in New York. So like they thought that it was this sort of organic uprising against the movie. Um, but I had started it, and uh, and inevitably it brings more press. Yeah, to it, the got, movie. it got all sorts of attention. It and was you like, didn't have to hire a PR agent, right? No, no, which exactly. Is amazing. Um, yeah, it was. What book was, told you to do this? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, and it was. We were just, uh, you know, what's the craziest thing that you could do that you wouldn't, you're not supposed to do, and like, what's the, what, what's the worst that could happen? Nobody cares. Basically, is what the worst that could happen. So, um, yeah, I did all sorts of crazy stuff like that okay so american apparel though i feel like you did stuff like this at american apparel too that i need to hear about yeah i mean uh that, i think it was actually part of some of the stuff that we'd done in american apparel had inspired the idea of, of the the billboards because we were finding that we were making these really provocative billboards that people really were vandalizing that they really were getting upset by um and then we realized um so there was this this like um street artist who was, who's like, uh, there was all this press about how he was like putting up these fake, or sorry, he was, he was putting up these like spoof ads all over New York City about American Apparel. They're like, like American Apparel ads were already controversial and these were like way more controversial. And so they would get tons of attention because it's like, is it real? Did they actually do this? Um, uh, where is this? And blah, blah, blah. And this went on for like a year. Um, and then the crazy, I remember the crazy thing was then we found out that actually none of them were real. Like, like he was just photoshopping them on to buildings and then taking pictures of them and or then, and then and then leaking this photoshopped thing to different blogs and then no blog was ever like well let's go down to you know like Houston and Orchard and see if it actually exists right um so I was like oh there's all this media attention but if it and if it's interesting enough people will run it without checking so um we started like we would make these controversial ads and then we would just post them on the website and then people would be talking about, you know, American Apparel's newest campaign. And it's like, it wasn't a campaign. Like we'd spent zero dollars. Like other than making the ad, it was not in any magazines or on television or on any billboards. It was just like hypothetically um, that, that that was still enough to get attention. So we were just, we were always sort of looking to poke um to do the things that a, a bigger company would, the Gap would never run a fake ad, you know. But American Apparel was small enough and and sort of, I guess, crazy enough to do stuff like that. That's nuts. It, and you didn't pay Kanye to say anything in the song, right? <laughs> yes, right, right. No, and and when you start to get, it's like if you get all that attention, you it starts to ripple through culturally for other reasons, right? So yeah, Kanye West talks about it in that one song, and. Um, it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was cool. We were just, we were like the company that everyone was always talking about. That's but, the, and that wasn't an accident. Do you know what I mean? I love it. And our advertising budget was like in a good year, like $10 million, not $100 million, right. like it would be for, for a much bigger company. So, how do you go from American Apparel to writing books, or are you already writing your book while you're at American Apparel? Well, I guess this is a good time to ask is the way. That I discovered you. Okay. So I have a, I have a background in marketing, mostly for small businesses um, on the side. If I'm not running one of my companies, and uh, 
I was just curious learning more about marketing. And so I picked yeah. up Growth Hacker Marketing. Yeah. And at the time, I didn't know anything about you. I just saw the book. That was, was life changing. Like, I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'll read this. And from there, then I, you know, when, you, when your other work came out, I was like, oh, I like this author. I'm going to yeah. keep reading him. But how much, for, and one, let's talk about growth hacking. And two, how much further after American Apparel did you write that book? So my first book was called Trust Me, I'm Lying, which okay. was sort of like an expose of all these different marketing things. Because my, my thinking was like, this is all really fun and there are cool stories to tell, but it's not all fun and games. Like you could do the same playbook to become president or you could do the same playbook um, to spread hate or to any other sort of negative, uh, more damaging message. Um, and plus like, it's also like, it's fun as a marketer to make a fake advertising campaign that people talk about. But if you sort of step back, there is something wrong about that. It's like people are getting upset and they're outraged about this thing and they're spending like real energy on it, but it doesn't exist. And so it's, I, it's not that I felt bad about it, but I just didn't like, I didn't like that that was the situation. Like as much as I was taking advantage of it, I would have rather that it, none of it existed. So that was my first book. And so I wrote that while I was at American Apparel. Um, because the company, as much as it got good publicity, it was also the recipient of all sorts of bad yeah, publicity for a lot of a lot oftentimes by the same outlet. So it's like the same outlet that was running a real story about a fake ad is then also reporting on some lawsuit or on the stock price. And so it always struck me as sort of weird that it's like, okay, on the one hand they're obviously have very low standards and they'll write about things that they haven't verified. But then they talk about these serious things and we're supposed to take them seriously. So I wrote that book uh, with sort of the support of the CEO. He, he was into the idea. And then Growth Hacker um, came out while I was still there. I'd sort of left uh, to write books, but I was still like um, an advisor to the company. Um, so Growth Hacker started as a really short book. I mean, it started as a 10,000 word ebook and then it became a, a, a paperback. And then I wrote one more book while I was there, which is The Obstacles the Way. So I, I was still, I would, I lived in New Orleans and I would come back to, to Los Angeles maybe like once a month um, and just sort of review business and, and, and work on stuff for them. But I was, I, the transition wasn't as abrupt as say like leaving college. It was much more gradual and there was a lot of overlap between the two. Can you explain to anyone who's listening what growth hacking is? So growth hacking is a style of marketing um, pioneered mostly by startups. It's sort of what do you do when you have zero budget, when you're starting from nothing and, you know, you're not going to do like the traditional marketing stuff, right? You're not like, oh, let's print up some t-shirts or let's hand out some flyers or let's buy a television commercial because you can't do any of that. So it's like, how does Facebook go from zero users to a billion users or you know, how does Groupon become one of the fastest growing companies of all time? Or, or like, it's, it is interesting to think it's like, we all remember when Uber didn't exist. Like that was not that long ago. It was like seven years ago, Uber didn't exist. And then what made you take your first Uber ride, right? It wasn't like you saw an ad for them in a magazine. It wasn't like you were watching the Super Bowl and you saw an Uber commercial. It was just, it just sort of happened. You know, and that's that kind of growth is what growth hacking is about. How did you, how do you like the first time you used Airbnb? Like, how did that happen? Why did that happen? So, if there's an influencer listening, um, how could you tell them they're just starting out? How can they growth hack between all the different platforms? Very minimal budget, just getting going. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the fir- the first thing that growth hackers really look at is like, is this actually new and better and worth investing in? Like so much of what people, the reason that most traditional advertising is boring is because it's two boring companies competing for the same user, right? And so it's like, if you're trying to, social media and this sort of online stuff, it's all about standing out. So it's like, what, uh, I have a book, where is it? Blue Ocean Strategy. It's uh, right there. It's one of my favorite books. Oh, Michael's uh, going to buy it. <laughs> uh, they're saying, and there's a good sequel that just came out actually, but they're they're saying it's like uh, Red Ocean is where there's lots of competition. You want to go to Blue Ocean where there's like no competition. You want to create a new market. So like there's not 50 other of you on, actually, there's a bunch of other people just like you on, on social media now, but when you did it, you weren't like battling it out with all these other people. And so the there was... It's, it's not like there were 50 ride-sharing apps when Uber came out. They invented the category. And so as a marketer, or if you're, if you're trying, you're like, how can, I, how can I break through? It's like, actually, you shouldn't be trying to break through. You should be trying to break new ground entirely. So honing down on the niche and riding the niche. Yeah, what, what is the niche? What, what makes you so good that people are going to do a lot of your marketing for you? Love like it. the first time you try Airbnb, you're like, oh, this is so cool. We're going to stay in someone's house. You know, like, you're not like, uh, it's, it's, it's not like you're staying in a Holiday Inn versus a Marriott and you're like, it's basically just a hotel. You know what I mean? It's yeah. so radically different and new. And so that that's like, when I look at all my marketing successes, I would say the product itself was responsible for a huge percentage of whatever I was able to do. And people always go like, yeah, yeah, I got that. My thing's really special and new. But the truth is, it's not. How did you get so good at marketing? Like, is it just something that's come naturally to you? I mean, I think I got to work with really cool clients. I got to work with people who were already pretty good at marketing. Um, And then I think I didn't learn, like, the old way of doing it. So it was just like, okay, Ryan, make this ad. Yeah. And then it was like, I didn't know how. So I made up a, I made, I was just trying to do it from a totally different perspective. That's the biggest thing. I mean, being in marketing myself, like the the thing that I try not to look for is if somebody comes out of school and they says, oh, I, ju- I studied marketing in school. To me, and I don't want to put anyone down, but that's yeah. kind of a red flag because I'm like, yeah. you're, you're learning things that used to be. Yes. But the problem is that the landscape's shifting so frequently yeah. at such a fast pace that you kind of have to be a practitioner. You have I'd, to kind of be out on your own. I'd much rather hear from someone go like, uh, you know, I studied English and I built this blog or, you know, I helped my friends start this YouTube channel or like I, I did all the marketing for my dad's coffee shop. Like I would rather you have done something or made something because then you're actually like, then you actually know what the feeling is to like start with nothing and try to get one person to try something. I also think two, studying history. Sure, sure, sure. I think the theme of my childhood was figuring it out. Yeah. And I always say that's like the best tool in my toolbox now because I've had to just kind of figure everything out. Yeah. It sounds like that's the same for you. Yes. Uh, Elon Musk talks about this idea of like going to first principles. Do you, do you guys know what this means? So basically it means like, um, so when you're starting uh, uh, SpaceX, um, there were lots of companies that like, ma- he wants to have a rocket company. So you would go to these people who make all these different pieces of the rockets and you would go like, Okay, we're going to buy this from this supplier and this from this supplier and then we assemble it and and th- the prices were like insane like totally un- unaffordable so he was like well what do these things actually cost to make and they were much much cheaper so he's like oh 
instead of doing it the way that everyone's going to do it, I'm just going to figure out how to do it myself. And it turns out he's able to build this company because he doesn't go, okay, the way you start a space company is by doing X, Y, and Z. He said, let's, let's look at this as if there was no precedent. What do all these individual pieces cost? That's how we're going to do it. And so they end up making all their pieces for the rockets or for, for the most part. And so it's this idea of not like when you when you study marketing in school, they're like, here's what marketing is. They're not saying, here, you're taking over this app, make it grow. And then you're having to figure it out and sort of go to the essence of what it means to spread something. Did you write about, you wrote about that example in Obstacles Away now? Is that? I might have. I might have. Or did you write about that somewhere else? I think I, now that I hear you saying it again, I think I've read that. I might have written about it somewhere, but I I mean, I just think about it all the time. It's like, make sure that you're not just internalizing like the way we've always done things or like the way it's supposed to be done. Um, Because really marketing is anything as my definition in growth hacker is like anything that gets or keeps customers. So if like Zappos, like has amazing customer service and they've like hugely invested in customer service. But the reason I use Zappos is because they have good customer service. So their customer service is actually marketing. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or if like, if I was using Zappos because they had the best prices and then, uh, then the shoes that I got, they didn't, they sucked or they were broken or something. And then, so I was not going to be a Zappos customer anymore. But I email them and they're like, we're so sorry. Here, we're going to do all this stuff for you. And then I stay a Zappos customer. That's marketing also because they, they did something that kept me a customer. So it's it's really, it's just when you go to first principles, you're just like, okay, here's what this actually means rather than like, here's here's the definition of what marketing is supposed to be. And I think this is true for everything. It's like, you know, an influencer today means that you're on social media or you do this stuff. But really, you could have an influencer who's not on the internet at all. They're just like some guy in your town that everyone listens to totally. or whatever, right? It's like, what does this actually mean? That's really important. Someone drove by me the other day, this guy in this cool hat, and he was driving a Jeep, and he was listening to Johnny Cash. And I Looking I, at guys? What? <laughs> and I was I, I immediately went and downloaded um, Johnny Cash after yeah. that. And I said to I said to Michael, I said, that's an influencer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's just driving by. Right. It doesn't necessarily just have to be on social media. Totally. Okay, so I want to talk about the clients that you work with in marketing because you okay. work with some huge names. Yeah. Tim Ferriss. I did. I, I did it with Tim Ferriss last night. That's amazing. Yeah. He's um, so cool. He's the best. Yeah, we love his podcast. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's like one of the biggest ones in the world now. It's, so it's how insane. do you work with all of these people? Do they come to you? Do you approach them? Like, what's the process? So I met Tim in Austin in 2007 before his first book came out. So he was, uh, he was doing the influencer thing before anyone else. He would, he, let's say his book had like a $10,000 marketing budget. Um, and this is what I love. Uh, this is exactly what we're talking about. Let's say his book has a $10,000 marketing budget. Instead of buying $10,000 worth of ads or, you know, uh, sending out $10,000 worth of review copies, he bought $10,000 worth of plane tickets and he flew around the country to every tech conference and just met as many people as he could. And they all became his friends. And then it just happened that some of those people went on to found Twitter and Uber and made him literally millions and millions of dollars because he invested in their companies. But his, he, he was, he said, like, if meeting these bloggers helps sell my book, then it's marketing. And that's what I'm going to do. And so that's what he did. Um, and I was just one of the people that he met. And we became friends. And I gave him some advice on that book. And then uh, I did a little bit of marketing on the next book. And then I did all the marketing on the next book. 
and then the next one, and then hopefully I'll work on this one that's coming out soon. That's really cool. And then most of my clients come because they either heard that I worked with someone like him or someone like him knows other people like him and goes, you have to work with this guy. The domino effect. Yeah, I would say like 85% of my clients come from referral and then other ones come from, which is still basically a referral, comes from media attention that I've gotten for those campaigns that I've done for those people. I can imagine now the books help as well. My books? Yeah. yeah, totally, totally. It's almost like content marketing for the client. It's like almost. a re- it's like a resume and book format yeah. almost. Yeah, I mean, like, I th- that's that's another thing. It's like people go like, um, how do I get more clients? It's like do things that people like, and you'll have more clients than you know what to do with in basically any field. And, um, you know, it's like you found out about me from one of my marketing books, but other people read my more philosophical books and then find out that like, oh, he also does marketing. So, um, yeah, I was the other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it, it, I think it's about building a brand or a, a reputation that then you can monetize in many different ways. So let's 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 switch gears a little bit here and talk about the philosophical books. Okay. I, like I said, I found I discovered the obstacles of the way through growth hacker marketing. Yeah. And I have to thank you because I think when I was 14, 15 years old, I read Meditations. Really? Yeah. How? Um, my dad was always a big reader and he gave me a lot of crazy books growing up. And I think that, you know, I've been reading from You're a young lucky. age. Yeah, really lucky. He just, that's one thing. He's like, you can do this. You can go screw off here. You can go yeah. mess around. Um, <laughs> but you have to read. And, it's, yeah. and when I was a kid, if he would give me, we'd have like an allowance, we'd have to do chores. But the one thing that he spared no expense, like anytime you want to go to Barnes and Noble or anywhere, like, yeah. I'll buy you any books that you want, any, and anything you can read, yeah. which was which was cool. And I, I don't think I thought about it until actually just now how lucky I was for that because I could literally right. go into a bookstore and he would just say any book you want. But It would have been cheaper for him to buy you like a Nintendo 64 and it yeah. would have changed your life. It, it would have been cheaper because you would have been addicted to it, but you wouldn't have opened up all these Like stores. I remember having to do chores and mow the grass and all these things to save up for like one video yeah. game. Yeah, and it but took you could forever. have unlimited books. But unlimited books. And so I guess, you know, while a lot of the time while I was saving up to play video games, I would read a lot of books, which <laughs> yeah, is good. Right. But I, uh, going back, when I read Meditations at the time, it was a, it's a difficult book to get through as a 14, 15-year-old kid. That's yeah, insane. And um, I kind of got through it, but I don't think I took everything away from it, right? Sure. It just it just didn't have enough life experience at the time. So when you came out with Obstacle, it really kind of refreshed my view on stoicism. And yeah. since then, I've gone back. But in your, for people that don't know, um, and talking about stoicism, yeah, how would you define it? I kind of define it, and the reason I like it is I think it's, it's, a, it's philosophy, which a lot of the time kind of turns people off. Yeah. But I think it's one of the most logical... It's I, it's a practical philosophy, right? So most people think philosophy is like what university professors like waste time just sort of talking about hypothetically. And stoicism is much more a practical system for living. Do you know what I mean? Like in some ways, it's almost closer to a religion in the sense that it's like, do this, don't do this. This is wrong. This is right. It's not saying like, if you don't go these things, you'll like, if you don't do these things, you'll go to hell. But it's saying like, these things make you miserable and these things make you happy. Here's some bad assumptions that human beings have. Here's some better assumptions. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like a, it's a way, the, this philosophy was really supposed to be like the guide to what they would call the good life. So it's like, how do you be happy? How do you feel not stressed? How do you, how are you in control of yourself? How do you do good things? And that's what stoicism really is. My, 
my sort of definition is that um and by the way most people are familiar with it they don't know it's like the movie gladiators about stoicism marcus aurelius the the emperor of rome that commodus yeah, maybe we could maybe we could give a little context of the history of stoicism yeah, so if you've seen the movie Gladiator, Marcus Aurelius is the emperor. He's the old guy. Joaquin Phoenix's character who kills him, that's his horrible son. And that actually did happen. His son didn't kill him, but he did have a shitty son. Um, but it's basically, uh, it, it started in, in ancient Greece. It comes to ancient Rome. Um, it's it's typically for like doers, right? So on the one hand, you have Marcus Aurelius. It's, it's crazy to think like you're the, most, you're the king of the world, essentially, um, who really just loves philosophy, like he loves reading books and, and trying to make himself better. And then the person that he's basically exposed to Stoicism through is a, a man named Epictetus, who was a slave. So you have this philosophy that on the one hand is for like extreme adversity and difficulty and slavery. And then the other, it's like this way of coping with extreme success that is like being the emperor. Um so my, my sort of definition of Stoicism is basically that like the Stoic believes that we don't control what happens around us. We just control how we respond. And that's, that's really, at its very core, what the philosophy is. It's just like, the only thing that I'm going to focus on is my response to the world around me. So I don't control if someone's an asshole. I don't control if a hurricane you know knocks over my house. I don't control if I get cancer tomorrow. But I, I don't control if someone insults me, right? But I do control, do I tell myself that I've been hurt? You know, do I, uh, do, do I s- sit there sort of weeping over my house or do I start rebuilding? You know, um, uh, I've got cancer. Like, how am I going to live the rest of my life, right? The, whether it's six months or six years. And so stoicism is really, what I love about it is this sort of empowering kind of self-reliant way of living, I think when I revisited it, it just makes so much sense to me because like you said, there's, you know, the way I read it and the way I understand it is like really the only thing you control in this world ever is your thoughts, not your yes. wife, not your, yes. not your family, not outside events, not, not politics, not who's president, who's yeah. not president and none of that stuff. Really, the only thing you really control is your perceptions and your thoughts. Yeah. In a weird way, you don't even control like your own body, right? Like in the sense that like, uh, something could happen to it, right? You only control your own thoughts. Like. And so really practically, like as a writer, I control the idea for my books. I control the effort that I put into the books. I control uh, how hard I'm going to work on them. I control the marketing plan, but I don't control how many copies they sell. I don't control if everyone says that they love it or they hate it. And by the way, if it sells a million copies or if it sells one copy or if everyone says it's a work of genius or that it's a piece of shit, None of that should change my thoughts of what it is. It's like I should know that it's the best that I'm capable of and there therefore I should be proud of it. Or I should know, you know, I got lazy halfway through and I didn't do my best job. And so the fact that it's selling really well shouldn't make me feel any better. I should, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that ex- basically they're saying external things don't have power over our thoughts. Only we do. And so by controlling those thoughts... We have an advantage over other people who are sort of like jerked around by their thoughts and by what other people do all the time. So speaking on that, let's let's kind of talk about the Stoics response to stress or unexpected events. Let's say someone's going through something tough, terrible or something that they perceive to be terrible. What would be your first piece of advice? 
Well, the the Stokes would back up and go, "Why did you think this this wasn't going to happen?" Right? Like, like why were you not prepared for this to happen? And that's really true. It's like we spend all our time thinking about how things can go well and how how exactly how we want them to go, and then we're like caught off guard when they don't. And that's really uh, not a great way. So the Stoics are like always thinking about the worst case scenario. They're prepared. They're, they practice for things to go wrong. Um, but when you're in that stress, you're going, uh, you, let's let's try to look at it objectively. Like, why is this stressful? It's probably because you have these assumptions about how you need it to go or what, you're, what you feel obligated to do, um, that you feel like everyone's counting on you, that if you mess up, everything will be lost. And the Stoic would sort of ask you to step by step, like go through each one of those assumptions and go like, is this actually true? Like, does anyone care? Or are you making yourself, are you making this a stressful situation? And then I, I think they would go, you know, um, all that being said, I'm going to, I'm going to proceed anyway. I'm going to do my best. You know, like it's, it's not just like, oh, I'm going to think my way out of having to do any work here, but it's just like, Let's make sure I get this under control, and then I'm going to do my best. They wouldn't let a stressful situation shut them down. Yeah, of course, because um, first off, it's not as stressful as you think, and second, it's not an excuse, even if it is. Michael loved that book. He has notes on every single page. Oh man, that's very cool. I, I did. I did love it. It was good, and, it, and it, like I said, it reinvigorated my interest in going back and actually reading the Stoic work. And that's what I. Yeah, that's what I wanted to happen. That was my. That was my dream. Okay, let's talk about raw nerves. So you have said we are a pile of raw nerves. It's almost like we're always waiting for something to rattle us. What are some tools that you use when you feel super rattled? Um, I mean, really practically, like when I start to get really rattled, uh, I like I like to exercise, so I'll like run or swim. I'm just sort of, I want to step away from this entirely because it's like almost the more you're focused on it, the more you're throwing yourself at it, the more stressful it's going to be. Um, and then, uh, I mean, I'm going through something right now. So, like, uh, we have this place and, and we have a farm and uh, both got damaged in the storm. So, it's like I got some things I have to have fixed in the garage and the roof of our, our farm is messed up. And then there's this problem and that problem. And it's like, when I'm looking at it all at once, it's like, this is going to be so much work. This is so unfair. Why can't someone just handle this for me? And that's like the worst way to look at it. The better way would go like, okay, I'm going to put all of these in a list. And I'm just going to do one right after another. It's like if I try to solve them all magically at one time, I'm probably going to solve none of them. And if I, um, if I do it piece by piece, I'll start to make process or like make Elon progress. Musk. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> right? Why? Why am I believing this is still still stressful? Well. It's just, I think when you, I think the problem is with people, they, they, they have a tr difficult time, like you said, prioritizing. So at all these different things swim around in their head and they, they, they get so overwhelmed because you can't take, you can't take a step back and say, okay, holy shit. Like, let me just take one of these one by one. Yes. And then, you know, is this one solvable? Yes. Is, if the, and if it's not, then like move on and focus on something else. Right, right. Why are you throwing yourself at the hardest one over and over again when there's 10 other easier ones that you could get momentum and then breeze through the harder one? That kind of goes into building a lasting brand, though. It's like you, you almost like you, you, you wrote about this. You have to launch kind of quick and then kind of learn as you go. Yes. Instead of trying to think of the whole thing at once. 
Yeah, well, it's like people are like, I want a million followers. And it's like, well, you have seven. So why don't you just try to get to 10 first? You know? <laughs> oh, my God. If I told you how many times I had this conversation, people are like, when did you have an epiphany? I'm like, there's been no epiphany. It's like slow. Like you're chipping away slowly. Well, so my, my books are probably at the, by the end of this year will have sold about a million copies across incredible and that's like something i've been thank you i mean that's been something i've been working on for a long time but it's like the most copies i've ever sold in a single week of all of any one of the books is like i guess ten thousand would be one for ego and that's like that's higher than any of others but like on a normal week that wasn't a launch probably five thousand that's so many so it, still. But it's really not like not compared to a million. It's not compared so, to a million. It's and not. so it's like uh, people people look at where people are and they go like, how do I get there? And it's like, no, you should look at where that where that person was, where you aren't. I I have to think about this with my own books in the sense of like, let's say I'm ha- I'm I'm working on a book right now and I'm halfway through. I can't be comparing it to where my last book ended up. I have to be comparing it to where I was halfway through my last book. And if I do that, I'll actually, if I if I go, oh, I'm actually ahead of where I was at that, I'm, this halfway point is better than the last halfway point, then I feel confident. If I go, this halfway point is not as good as the completion point, as the finish line of the last one, I feel bad. And so this stoicism is all about those sort of mind tricks going, oh, I was just thinking about it wrong, and thus creating this stress and uh, anxiety or, or doubt. And if I think about it a different way, I don't feel that. So I'm going to go with the different way. I mean, in social media, it's it's hard to not compare yourself to everyone else. It's hard totally. to just start and stay in your own lane. Yes. How do you think that you've been able to stay in your own lane and not focus on what everyone else is doing? Well, so I think social media is really important as a creator. I think as a human being, you should spend as little time on it as humanly possible. It's like, like... <laughs> Like when I look at my Instagram posts, I have to go like, this is not my life. These are like the best parts of my life. And that, you know, the seven days between those two photos, uh, a lot of boring shit happened and a lot of normal shit happened. You were fixing your roof. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Maybe I should start an Instagram account that just shows me like the really shitty and really boring parts of my <laughs> and life. And it would have like zero followers because <laughs> yeah. who would want to, who would want to watch that? Right. Here's me sitting for three hours reading a book. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so it's like, you've got to, it's like, you've got to remember like where you're performing and then go like, Oh wait, everyone else is performing and that you can't buy into that. It's like, even with your own brand, like I think marketing is obviously essential, but you, it's, it's like, you got to have this weird relationship with marketing as a creator where it's like, on the one hand, as a salesperson, you sell the shit out of what you're doing. But then as the owner, you're like, almost miserable all the time about how much better everything could be. Do you know what I mean? It's about, I, I, I know what you're saying. It's yeah. kind of a finesse too yes. between the two. Yeah. Like if you're going around going like, I'm the best, I'm killing it. And you're actually thinking that you're going to get worse. But if you're, if your marketing is making it look like you're killing it, but you're going around going, I have to improve this, I have to improve that, then you will improve. Totally. I want to talk about a, li- a little bit about living in the moment. There's a there's a quote that I keep on the back of my computer that I love because um, I think pr- probably my favorite Stoic is Seneca and yeah. like Marcus Aurelius. But it says two elements must therefore be rooted out once and for all: the fear of future suffering and the recollection of past suffering. Yeah. Since the latter no longer concerns me, and the former concerns me not yet. Through s- in thinking of Stoic philosophy, yeah. how would the Stoics 
consider living in the moment? And how would they prioritize, you know, past, present, future? Well, they would say the past is unchangeable because it's done. And the future is, is out of your control or it's not up to you. And it's, by the way, might not even happen like because you could die. So they go like uh, the, the, this present moment is basically all you have. And they don't literally mean like this moment. They just mean like some interminable number of minutes or hours or, you know, right now, like uh, because that's all all that you have. I have a quote from Seneca on my desk that I love. It's sort of about the present moment where he says, some lack the fickleness to live as they, they wish and instead live just as they have begun, which is another way of saying like people go, well, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. So I have to continue to be this. Whereas like if you're living in the present moment, you can change your mind or change course at any time. Like it's like if you're obsessed with where you've been or where you're going what you're not doing is thinking in the moment about where you actually want to be and what you actually want and like. And so th- I think there's there's an incredible power of li- in living in the present moment. And what is the consideration to future? Well, I think you always want to be putting yourself in a position uh, that you're set up for the future. But I don't think you want to be doing things solely for their benefits in the future. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like, it's not like, oh, uh, you could die tomorrow. So don't save for retirement, you know, like it saving for retirement is, is good because you might have to retire, but also because spending all your money now is not good. You know what I mean? Then you're just like addicted to pleasure and you're being reckless and irresponsible. And, and, and so, you know what I mean? So there's almost all the good things that you can do in the present, I think also set you up for a good future. I like that. Don't let your past define you. Yeah, because it's it it simply is what it is. Okay, so let's talk about failure. One of my favorite quotes from your book, Obstacle is the Way, is the quote that reads, failure shows us the way by showing us what isn't the way. So let's talk about failure. Yeah. Tell me. Let's just get it all out there. Yeah, let's okay. get it out there. Uh, I mean, look, it fucking happens. Let's <laughs> talk about really fucking up. <laughs> it, it, ha- it happens. Uh, and you're going to try things that aren't going to work out. Um, and you could look at them as, okay, it didn't work out. That was a huge mistake. Or you could go like, now I know that that doesn't work. You know, um, I eliminated one of the infinite amount of options. And so that's, that's what I'm always like, for instance, uh, I'm always trying to, to learn what I don't like. And sometimes you have to learn what you don't like by trying things you think you're going to like and then finding out like, oh, wait, this is horrible. This is, you know what I mean? Like, like for instance, like finding out what your limit is as a person uh, in terms of like workload. If you're just guessing, maybe you're leaving a lot on the table. So maybe you have to overcommit and then make a bunch of mistakes and then go, oh, I need to slow down. Uh, I need to be more in control. So I think I... Failure sucks, and ideally you want to avoid it, but when it does happen, it does always possess some educational component. Are you hard on yourself when you fail? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think I am. I think most people are, but I, I try to, I'm trying to not, that immediate reaction, I'm trying not to let, like, dominate. I can't believe you're 29. I'm 30, actually. So you're 30. That's why you can't believe it. Oh, my gosh crazy christ <laughs> so the the, the next the, uh, you follow up obstacles way with ego is the enemy and i don't want to yeah. sound like what's that, who's that guy that does like the the movies you know the uh with the the beard I you know, know. Like james actor lipton? Stu- yeah james lipton i don't want to i don't want to sound like that dude yeah. but 
<laughs> the re- the reason I think I like your, I identify with your books is you take subjects that may not be the most like titillizing, the most yeah. exciting subjects, and you make them very accessible to and entertaining to readers. So like like I said, reading Marcus Aurelius' Meditations that's a difficult book for yeah. anyone that's not a like a big reader to get through. It's just it's hard. Your books make it very I don't want to say easy, but you but you it applicable is a good word. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think uh, the reason most people don't read is because a lot of books suck, you know? <laughs> and so I think my job as the writer is to make it entertaining and accessible. And, like, look, most people don't want to read a book that tells them that they're too full of themselves. So I sort of saw that as a challenge, and then I thought, okay, I think we all know that ego's a problem, but we don't want to be lectured about it. So I'll lecture other people about their egos, and then we can sort of see ourselves reflected in that right so i want to talk i want to look at historical stories of either really successful people or really unsuccessful people whose egos held them back or by conquering their ego they were able to achieve that success and then we can we all have that part of us in us so we could learn from that no i think when i think back on my life and i don't don't want to speak for lauren but most of the time when i've gotten in trouble or done something stupid, it's because of egos gotten in the way. Of course. And 100%. It's, <laughs> one second, 100%. 100%. Yeah. 100%. And yeah. it's, but it's, sometimes it, you know, it's difficult sometimes to differentiate between competence and ego. Yeah. Like maybe that's the, is that the right way to say it? No, that's totally right. Um, there's a quote I have in the book from one of the Stoics uh, where he says, um, uh, it's impossible to learn that which you think you already know. I think that's a great encapsulation of ego. So it's like we're getting in trouble when we think we've got to figure it out. When we think it's going to be easy, when we think like everything else I've done has been a huge success. Um, And, you know, that's not confidence. Confidence is like, okay, uh, I'm a hard, I know that I'm a hard worker, so I'm going to work really hard. So I don't have to worry about that. Or like, I know I'm stronger at, like, you think about like two boxers sizing each other up. It's like, okay, uh, here are my weaknesses, and that's humility. Here are my strengths. Uh, that's confidence, you know, uh, I'm confident that I'm better than them here and here, but I'm vulnerable here and here. Ego is like, I'm the motherfucking champ and no one can touch me. Like that's, that might get you into the ring, uh, and might feel like it's beneficial in the short term, but it's also how you get knocked on your ass. I think Conor McGregor, honestly, in this, oh my maybe, God, going, I was this, just maybe this is controversial, I was but just... I think going out on a limb that I think he's a good example of someone who's highly confident, yeah. but maybe has his ego in check. Like every time he's taken yeah. a loss, he's been very humble about it. And he said, you know, I could have done this better. or I could have done this better. But going into the fight, he's for sure saying like, listen, I'm going to beat the hell out of you. I'm yeah. going to win. Like, and but I, I think bet that... privately he was much more realistic about his chance. And that's the difference between marketing and your own sort of personal assessment too. Um, but I think he also, I bet he's, I bet he looked at it and he was like, look, if the following things go right, if I do these, I bet he, like, if he had, he sort of, I think he knew, like, if I have to go more than five or six rounds, I'm probably not going to win. And that's why he was trying to win the fight early. And it didn't happen. So then he lost. But I don't think he looked at, I don't think he looked at that in any way as like, this is going to be easy. He wasn't shocked by don't the loss. Don't you guys think, though, that he was looking at it from a marketing standpoint completely? Oh, not if he was going to, you well, know? I mean, I, I think it's both, right? He's like, look, this is mostly upside for me. And he said this. He's like, you either win or you learn, you know? Um, 
and then he's probably like, but either way, you make a hundred million dollars. So <laughs> and like, and there's also no. I mean, the what I mean, what I always tell people too is like, people are like, oh, he lost, he's done. But and they said now he has to go back to UFC and he's gonna pay, maybe not get paid as much. But I go, no, you're not understanding. Like he did such a good job marketing himself yeah. in that fight that no matter what he does next, there's gonna be a huge audience that's interested. Like, okay, what's this guy gonna do next? He's yeah. on a whole other level. Yeah, and he's gonna yeah. he's gonna garnish a payment bigger than anybody else yeah. in that sport. Yeah. Okay, so I feel like my ego is a constant work in progress. <laughs> it's something I feel like I need to check myself on daily. Yeah. That's just the truth. In the world of social media, the ego is so real. What's a tip that you can give me and the listeners for checking our egos? Um, well, look, I think uh, checking out from it as much as possible. Like, uh, you know, ex- experiencing things in the real world, uh, whether it's, you know, working in a soup kitchen or, you know, hiking in a national park like don't live your life for social media like let social media be a reflection of things that you do and then make sure you're going out and reminding yourself just like how much is out there do you know what i mean like what one of the ways i keep mine in check is just like i'm always tackling harder and harder projects so even as things might be looking great on the outside to other people like i'm getting my ass kicked so that's helping as well you said that you like to hang out with people that are smarter than you and surround yourself with that too. That's a yeah, good way I to keep to. it in check. Yeah, well, what the hell are you doing with that stuff? <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. Or, or I like to hang out with like people that just like like where I live uh, most of the time, like on the farm, is like none of these people care at all about who I am. You know what I mean? Like I'm like the idiot who doesn't know how to hang barbed wire or something, right? Like so I like to spend time. It, it They don't just have to be smarter than you. Like so you have to be around Nobel Prize winners. Just go around – just. Don't be in your element all the time. Tell, having people tell you you're great, you're great, you're great. Yeah, or, or but just like people who are better than you at some new or different thing. It, like it's not the most impressive thing, but I don't know how to repair. I don't know how to change the oil on a car. So if I'm around someone who's like, what do you mean? That takes five seconds. I'm like, that checks you. You're like, oh, this is something I, I don't know. Didn't you spend a long time? I feel like I, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but it was like a year you spent doing something on a fence. Uh, you did something after your book. I heard you say on Gary's show. Oh, no, no. I was saying that, uh, I mean, on the farm, it's like work all the time. And it's very humbling work that's very different than the work that comes naturally to me at this point. So, um, yeah, like today after this, uh, I have to go, uh, like seed several fields. Uh, and my wife's like picking up the, the grass seed right now. We, we have to like plant for the, 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 the winter grass. And so, like I've never done that before, so it's gonna be a comedy of of errors. But at the end of it, I'll feel both humbled and confident in the sense that I'll, I've just done something I've never done before. I feel like when I'm writing or doing something creative, that I have to step out of it to gain perspective. I always totally. tell Michael, I'm like, I need to wrap my head around this before I give you like an answer. Do you use the farm as something where you yeah. step out of your writing, and and when you do do that, do you stop thinking about writing completely? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like when I swim, my mind is like still I'm thinking of nothing. And then sometimes that problem that I'm trying to solve, like the solution just like slips into your mind. Totally. Yeah. I'm the same way. See, now, now when I say I need to wrap my head around something, I'm going to refer to Ryan. You got to wrap your head around a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, like with my wife, like me running or swimming is not like a thing I do for me. It's like it's part of the work day. Makes right? Sense. Because it's so wrapped up with me being good at what I do. So it's not like, oh, why are you home an hour later than you were going to be home? 
like why did you go to the gym it's like no work just took an hour later than normal got it so it's kind of it's kind of like your meditation yeah do you meditate at all or is that your meditation i can't sit still yeah so. i'm the same way i have a i can't meditate either and i've really tried and i've tried <laughs> to read way. up on it and i've tried yeah. to do it i just like i think my form of meditation is probably reading yeah. or working out yeah. like and i think that you can get forms and i've heard a lot of people that are really big proponents of meditation I've given it a good effort. Maybe I'll go back to it, but it's just not, maybe at this point, it's not for me. I tried totally. to do Tony Robbins priming. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's okay. It's it's better than just sitting there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the, what we're, you know, kind of what we, we're here to talk about, which is yeah. Perennial Seller. Okay. Um, your most recent book, The Perennial Seller, The Art of Making and Marketing Work That Lasts. The way I understand it, Perennial Seller's and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I think New York Times bestseller list is like, it's, is it done by month or by week? Uh, both. Okay. Month and week, how books are selling or is there yeah. multiple? Okay. Um, but a perennial seller is maybe not factored in. So that'd be like books like maybe Harry Potter yeah. or it's the, Catch a Mockingbird, or not to, to Kill a Mockingbird, Catcher in the Rye, stuff like that. Like 90% of the income in the publishing industry, also the music industry, also the movie industry, is not from like what just came out. Okay. It's from the things that are 10 years old or five years old or even 18 months old. Um, and I mean, even my own books, like The Obstacles Away will sell more copies this year than it did last year, than it did the year before, than it did the year before. But it won't go But it, But list. it's never hit any of the lists, ever. Okay. Um, and so like when, when someone says I'm a best-selling author... What that means is they sold the best in a seven-day period, not the best ever, right? Or not the total number of copies sold. So, uh, you know, um, I know people who have a million Twitter followers, but their tweets get seven retweets. Meanwhile, I know people who have 10,000 and they do 1,000 each, right? So it's like the the numbers can be very misleading. Um, You know, I know books that have sold a million copies in 1986, and from 1987 on, they've sold zero copies, right? So it's like, ideally, you want to have that lasting relevance, staying power. And that's that's what I've tried to do with my books. And then what I was writing about in this one is like, that's how I wish more things were. And I wish more people set out to do stuff like that. Well, I like the book because you apply it not just to books. Yeah. Like for I mean, me, everything. I'm not a writer, right, right. right? And for Lauren, you know, she's a, she's a writer, but just cr- basically creating work in the creative process. Yeah. So the first half of the book covers the creative process and what goes into that and, and the, the dedication that you need to have to actually create a quality piece of work. And then the second half is marketing, which I think is so important, which I think a lot of creatives kind of slack on. Yeah, it's not just, okay, I made this awesome thing and now everyone will know my name. You still have to hustle and work really, really hard. And in some ways the marketing is like, another creative canvas you know i heard you talk about the difference between seinfeld and friends can oh, you yeah. can you talk about that because of that I I love seinfeld. no that really put it in perspective for me well people have gotten mad at me because i guess i guess friends is like popular again with like they got young a big people. community not like seinfeld though that well that's that, my point that's my point um and and in some ways i would wonder if like friends is having a resurgence because like everything has gotten so much dumber that like friends seems like smart in comparison. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, it's like compared to like Logan Paul. Uh, friends is like a smart television show. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, si- Seinfeld. Seinfeld as a television show has made more than three billion dollars since it went off the air, because of reruns, syndication, Netflix. De- uh, is it Netflix or Hulu, Hulu deal? Yeah. Um. Uh, and that's because it's not 
it's it's a show it's not about new york in the 1990s it's a show about young people living in a city dealing with the absurdities of life right it's a it's got friends is a drama is a dramedy uh seinfeld is like jerry seinfeld's sort of comedic eye acted out right so they're always dealing with you know low talkers or double dipping or like they inv- they they captured all these as- ridiculous parts of life that can still be applied now they're still true it's a bunch yes. of memes almost that's exactly that's exactly what and, it and is. i always think back like i don't i didn't i was never a big friend family but a big seinfeld guy you, there's so many episodes and quotes you can remember from Seinfeld. Like I can't, mm-hmm. I can't, I don't really see that happening with Friends. So w- why funny. is that? Explain like the difference to the audience. Why? Why? Well, so it's funny. Every episode of Friends is called like the one where like Joey does this, but it's like actually I can't really remember any episodes of Friends, and I've probably seen several. I've seen at least a hundred episodes of Friends, but uh, if I were to go like, have you seen the Seinfeld like the one where they're lost in the parking lot? Yeah. Like I got lost at the. Austin airport parking lot like two weeks ago. And I was thinking of that episode as this happened. Right. Um, or like, have you seen the one where, where Kramer gets a job, at, like gets hired at a place, but he doesn't actually work there. You know, like they, they've captured all these elements of that are hilarious in the moment, but they also capture some essential, like the one where George decides to do the opposite of everything he normally does. <laughs> and his life is successful. Like, We've felt like we've failed a bunch of times. And we're like, well, what if I'm really trying? Why am I failing? What if I just did the opposite? You know, like these are all things that we've thought about. And then they actually did it on the show. And so it's, it's sort of got that timelessness built into it. If, if uh, like, I remember, uh, I remember some episode of friends where they're like, they're all going to like a counting crows concert or something. Well, that doesn't stand up that well. Like if you think about what happens in Seinfeld, there's no like celebrities. There's no. There's nothing that really dates the show, and so it feels very time. It feels both timely and timeless at the same time, and that's something you have to build in when you're making something. Also, like Friends is not relatable. I mean, you, it's absurd. It's, yeah, it's like you, you, it's so expensive to live in Manhattan. So I think you you can relate more to Seinfeld. Absolutely. So let's talk about the the creative process, and in your opinion, what does it take? to create a perennial seller like what do you have to do to sit down uh it takes however much work you think it takes it's like 10x that do you know what i mean um just way more than you think um and i and i think people don't want to do the work people want to have it's like uh people don't want to write books they want to have books like they want to <laughs> have a book that they've written you know or people don't want to build a social media following they want to have one and they think that they've heard stories about how so-and-so just threw up a video and now she has 7 million subscribers. And it's like, that wasn't how it went at all. No, no. It, it's, it's interesting to think about. We were asking you earlier before we started this podcast, has anyone asked you to do a podcast? You've been yeah. asked, we don't have the time. I wanted to, this maybe, I wanted to get your take on this. It's a little yeah. bit different. But for writing, for example, you sit down, you have an idea, you write it out, you go through an editing process, and you write it out, yeah. then you go through another editing process, and on and on and on until you get your final product where you, where you decide, okay, this is, I'm happy with this. It's going out to the world. Yeah. When we started this podcast, definitely wasn't like that. Like we, yeah. and, I, and I don't think it would have been possible to do that because when we launched, we said, okay, we're just going to launch quickly and get this out there. And it wasn't so much because we wanted to half-ass it. It was more like 
we needed to do it to get to a place where we we're both practiced because both of us don't come from anywhere near this background. Yeah, so look, what's your I, take I think, on I it? think every kind of content is different. And a huge percentage of my writing is not done in isolation over two years. I write articles every week, right? So different things, if you guys were making a movie, you wouldn't just put it, you wouldn't work on it in over an hour and throw it up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So different, different content takes different things and you have to respect whatever the medium demands, I think. Yeah, and I think like even for this, as you see, like there's these questions aren't just off the top of the head. Like you have yeah. to, I think people yeah. don't put a lot of time in researching and things and I don't think, but I guess the question I'm asking is, do you think that approach is right or wrong? Like for us, when we the way we did it. Uh, well, I mean, in, in Growth Hacker, I'm talking about that sort of minimum viable product. You, All of my books start with articles that I'm testing and getting feedback on. So it, it's very it's very risky and very hard to like do this stuff in a vacuum and like hope people like it. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually more a proponent of putting it out there in the world and getting feedback. Um, but I'm really not going to pour the gas on the marketing side of things until like I know it's good. It's oh, and really, we, really we good. got some feedback in the beginning. And it, was, yeah. it, it was tough. I mean, it's tough to stomach sometimes. Sure. So but. before we wrap this up, I want to know what book you would recommend the audience starts with because you have like a medley of books. Like what do you what, what's the book that you would let's, recommend? Let's, let's do three books that you okay. think would enhance. But I want to start life. with one of his. Like what which book? Oh, one of you, mine? Yes. Which book of yours would you recommend? I'd probably start with with. The Obstacles of the Way, if okay. I was picking one for me. Um, if I'm picking, uh, I'd go with The 48 Laws of Power from Robert Greene. I think that's a, a must read. Um, my favorite novel is What Makes Sammy Run by Bud Schulberg. Which I is, love that book. These are like my, my favorite books. Uh, these are like my, I call them my life books. So do that. Um, and then I really like The War of Art and Turning Pro by... Um, Stephen Pressfield. I love The War of Art. Yeah. (laughs) Of all those, I've read three of those books. I have not yet read 48 Laws of Power, which is crazy because it's been like every That looks like you've read it a lot. You can tell. I have one copy, two copies, three copies. I have four copies. Okay. So you guys, you've got a lot of reading to do. Yeah. Okay. Where can everyone find you? Where can they find your book? Pimp yourself out. Books. Books. Yeah. So all the books are on Amazon. Uh, just search my name. Uh, my website's ryanholiday.net. And then I think I'm at Ryan Holiday pretty much everywhere. What's the address of the farm? No, just <laughs> Please don't come. <laughs> Thank you so much for sitting down and taking the time with us. Thank yeah, you, this man. was awesome. You are a smart dude. <laughs> if you like this show, you guys will probably also love episode 48 with Mark Manson. Mark Manson is the author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. We interviewed Mark last year, and it's one of our favorites. Also, you can go to the Skinny Confidential and search book club. And there's lots of different posts. I think Michael's wrote some. I've wrote some um, about our favorite books. So make sure you're also subscribed and you've rated and reviewed the podcast. If you do write a review, email it to asklauren, Lauren with a Y, at theskinnyconfidential.com. And we will send you my five beauty tips and tricks straight to your inbox. As always, follow us on Instagram at theskinnyconfidential and at Michael Bostick. And we will see you next week.